Amen. So I want to, amen. So I want to jump right in. So if you have your Bibles, open to Mark chapter 2. So we're finishing Mark chapter 2, picking up in verse 23. Mark 2, 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of presence? which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now to Western ears, we read that and we say, Well, what's the big deal? Why, what, what's all the fuss about? And so what I think we need to do before working through our text, and we will get to the text I promise, but there's a lot of cultural and biblical issues that need to be addressed. And so we are going to spend a little bit of time on what the Sabbath is, what the expectations were on on the people, Um, and so to put that in our proper context. And we will spend some time on what's the situation with David that he's talking about, what's what's the son of man. There's a lot of things that are at play here that I think need clarification. Uh, And so we will spend more time than usual in our introduction on the, uh, the Sabbath uh, but trust me, it will set up our, our passage, and I think this is a good time to address it. In order to figure out where, where this tension between Jesus and the Pharisees come from, we have to understand what's at play underneath it. There is a, a cultural situation that is understood to them that's not understood to us. And we really have no idea how big the Sabbath was to the people of Israel. And so hopefully we kind of paint that picture a little bit for you. So Sabbath is, it's a principle of sevens, or rest. And we're, we're going to get into the, the text, uh, get into Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 and look at some of those. But just think for a moment culturally. When God commands you six days, you do your labor, all of your secular pursuits, and then on the seventh day you abstain from it and you rest, this is not just a, a, a suggestion, this is not just a commandment, this is drilled into your life. It was as natural as the sun comes up in the morning and goes down in the evening. That is how each person would divide their week. Six days and then seven. Six days and then seven. From sundown on Friday evening to sundown on Saturday evening. Everyone was expected to do this. It was built into their lives. From the very beginning, when God crafted a nation, when they're in Egypt, they were not a nation. They were just a big scattered family. When he brings them into the wilderness, they become a nation. And when they complain, he he institutes a practice. I'm going to bring manna from heaven. I'm going to give you bread with no origin. And you're going to eat of it for six days and gather it for six days. But I'm going to give you enough on the sixth that you don't gather on the seventh. This was given to them before they were given the law. And in the law, they're given this, this principle. And so we'll look at its origins in just a moment. And this is a big deal because the rest of the world would work seven days. The rest of the world took no relief from their efforts. Here's the big difference. The rest of the world created gods for their own purposes. So the rest of the world, all of the other pagan nations, 
had to continue to try to appease these gods. And because they're not gods at all, there was no reason for them to rest. There was no hope that if they took a day off that their gods would still provide. So this became a continual grind in and of their own strength, propping up their own gods, as opposed to a God who made a people for his glory and for his purposes and institutes a Sabbath tithe, if you will, a setting aside of their time to remember that it is God who made me, it is God who will provide. So this is a stark contrast to the rest of the culture. And so the first thing we're going to look at is Exodus 20, where God lays this out. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Exodus. If you don't know where that is, it is the second book in your Bible. So we're going to look at a couple passages in Exodus. So Exodus is the first giving of the law. And there's a distinctive between this and Deuteronomy, so we'll look at Deuteronomy as well. commandment for the Sabbath is the longest commandment. It is the most detailed. It has the most requirements in the, the Ten Commandments. So we're going to pick up in verse 8 of chapter 20. Now there are distinctives in here on what God requires from His people. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's not just remember it and keep it in the back of your mind, but keep it holy. Set it aside. Sanctify it. Make it different from the others. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. Uh, You shall not do any work, excuse me. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. And he made it holy. A few things you're going to see in there. Remember it to keep it holy. That you may know that I am the Lord your God. This is a creation principle. Where does God place the authority of this? From the very beginning. I created in six days and I rested on the seventh. This is what you will do. You are made in my image. I made you to create. I made you to build things. But just like I rested, you will rest. You will create for six days, and you will rest on the seventh. This is a creation principle. But it is also a covenant principle. Covenant meaning an agreement between God and man. Look at Exodus 31. Uh, Just a heads up, we're going to look at a lot of cross-references and a lot of passages this morning. I'm going to try to go slow. You have to remind me often. I tend to move quickly. I'm going to try to go slow, but... This is essential. This is not going to be like most of our our messages. Most of our messages, we're going to spend a lot of time in our text, and we will. Um, But we're going to look at a lot of other helpful passages that kind of bring this together. So, right before they make the golden calf, the last words that are given from God to Moses are the importance of the Sabbath rest. And this idea of covenant, I'm making this agreement with you. With my people. Look at Exodus 31, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. So this is the seventh day of the week, and all of the feasts were considered Sabbaths as well. They were rests from your regular calendar. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. This is a principle to say, I have set you apart. You are my chosen people. 
You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. This is part of your holiness. This is part of me making you like me. This is something to build into your life. And you are to take this deadly serious because everyone who profanes it, uh, that means defames it or does something against the intended nature of the day, everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. That's a key word at the end there. Refreshment. This is what a day with the Lord is supposed to be. You separate your your secular pursuits and everything you do on the other six and find your rest. I mean, we can probably say a collective amen. In our culture these days, it it is hard to find real rest. We're always anxious. We're always worried about what must come next. What are my, my, my long list of to-dos? But if you have ever found real rest, saying, I will meditate on the Lord, and He removes from my mind all of the burdens that I carry with me all week long, that is true refreshment. That is the, the purpose of building into the life of Israel this rest and refreshment in the Lord. The rest feeds the refreshment. But first, it must be holy, set apart to the Lord, because He is holy, and He desires a people to be holy. But this also is a little counterintuitive to us, because let's be honest, we're lazy. (laughs) Um, And we don't really need to be told to rest. Some people hear this and like, that's good, I'll rest seven days if you want me to. It's very different than the culture that, that w- was, was happening then. Then, if you didn't work, you didn't eat literally. There were no drive throughs If you didn't plant seeds, and if you didn't harvest, and if you didn't go out and fish, you were going to starve. You had to work. Now we don't have to. We can kick our feet up, and we can watch TV, and someone will eventually give us something so we don't have to keep working. This is not written to the 21st century. Well, resting's not a big deal. It is. You don't really understand this unless you work on a farm. I'm looking around. I don't think any of you work on a farm. Ian worked on a farm this summer. The animals do not take a day off from eating. You know, there there is not a, a, a day when something doesn't need to be done. And so you have to build your week in such a way where you can trust the Lord that the work will get done the next day. So this is a creation principle. This is a covenant principle, but it's also a redemption principle. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is the second giving of the law. After Israel screws up royally, builds the golden calf, and, and uh, forgets God completely, the, the important language here changes in Deuteronomy chapter 5. When the Lord gives them the law the second time, what did they say when they made the golden calf? This is the God who brought us out of Israel. This is the God who redeemed us. So when He gives them the Sabbath requirement the first time, he points to creation. Look what he does the second time. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, looking at verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. All this we know. Six days you shall labor and do your rest. All this we know. 
Look at verse 15. Before it was, remember, I'm the Lord your God who created you, who rested on the seventh day. But look at what he appeals to the second time. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Creation, covenant, and redemption. The day that you set apart to think on the Lord is not just that he made you, but that he redeemed you. That he bought you out of slavery. That an animal had to die. Blood had to be shed so that you could be saved. He redeemed you with the perfect price. This is what's at stake in the Sabbath. Remembering God, your creator. God, your redeemer. And then one more thing. There's a lot. Scripture has a lot to say about uh, the, the Sabbath. But one more I think is important. And this one will be up on the screen. The next few will be up on the screen. Um, Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. We looked at Isaiah 58 a couple weeks ago when we talked about fasting. Good fast and false fast. Isaiah starts with talking about the, the false fast that they had and then the true fast. Look at verse 13 of Isaiah 58. He brings up the problem first. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, you've turned my day into something for your pleasure. If you turn back from that, Here's what you should be doing, the second half of the verse, and call the Sabbath a delight and a holy day of the Lord honorable if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of earth. This is big language. I will, when the other nations appealed to their gods, their gods rode on the clouds. God's saying, if you hold up my Sabbath, if you honor me as holy, I will make you ride on the clouds. You will be stronger than the gods of these nations. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what do we see from just a quick survey of what the Bible says about Sabbath up until the ministry of Jesus? Creation is rooted in creation. It is covenant. It is redemption and it is meant to be a delight, not a burden. And so one more thing I think is important. And there's the question of what does the Sabbath mean for us? And we will get there in just a moment. But uh, one more. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Again, I'm going to plug our study in Hebrews. I hope all of you can join us. We're going to start this in September. The point of the book of Hebrews is to show how all of the Old Testament, everything up until this point, is pointing to Christ and finds its fulfillment in Christ. Hebrews chapter 4. Chapter 4 is about Joshua. Joshua is the one who finally brings them into the promised land. He gives them the land that God has promised them all along. But yet, they still couldn't fully rest. And so is that it? Is that the extent? And there's a rest that is talked about in chapters 3 and 4. But the culmination of all that is verse 9 and 10. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So what is this? This kind of sums it all up. True rest is knowing God. True rest is as God finished his work in six days, God in flesh finished his work on the cross. And if you are in him, there is true rest. There is eternal rest. 
This rest remains. This rest is perpetual. This rest goes on into eternity. That's how he describes the kingdom of God. When you go to be with Jesus, it is described as rest. And rest in the best possible sense. All your work, all your effort, all your striving in your own strength, you find rest in Jesus Christ. All you who are weary, heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. This is what's at stake, not just legalistic observation, but knowing that in the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Jacob, in Yahweh, Father, Son, and Spirit, there is real rest. He takes your burdens. He gives you peace that passes understanding, and it is yours forevermore in Jesus Christ. That is what all of this is pointing to. That is the culmination of Sabbath rest that we see in the entire Old Testament. And obviously Jesus has this in mind, but the Pharisees are still looking at the legal requirements, and we'll get there in just a moment. But this does beg the question, how should we view it? What does that mean for us? Now if you're paying attention, the language in the text is to Israel, to Israel, to Israel, to my people Israel. This is a principle for Israel. But what do we, as the people of God, as spiritual Israel, do with this? And so we have to figure out what the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law teaches us. And so there is uh, a real question among many believers. What do we do with the Lord's Day? We'll get there in a moment why it became Lord's Day to Sabbath. But there's a kind of debate. Well, is it a day unto the Lord or is it? still Sabbath observance. Should we, as Christians now living on this side of the cross, should we observe the Sabbath as Israel did to that extent? Now one, it's a little different. We live in a secular society. Uh, they didn't have hospitals that ran 24 hours a day. They didn't have police and, and firemen. And, you know, all of us have gone and gotten groceries on a Sunday. These things work seven days a week. One, we're not Israel. We're not a theocracy. We're not the people of God. Uh, like I said earlier, we don't work on, on farms. Most of us, if we take a day off, we can still eat if our computers aren't running. But the, the, the things are a little bit different. But the question remains, what type of observance is appropriate? Should it be strict as the Pharisees were to make sure we do no kind of work at all, make sure we limit our steps and limit our actions? Or is there freedom in it? And so, if you want an answer, I'm not going to give you one. Uh, I'm not trying to land on that today. But I want you to see what's more important. And this is where Paul is really helpful, as he often is. That whatever you do, you do it unto the Lord. Look at Colossians. We just spent a lot of time in Colossians. It'll be on the screen. Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 16 and 17. So when Paul addresses the errors that are coming into the church, those who are trying to impose Judaistic ideas in the church, trying to bring back the burdens of the law, here's what Paul says to them in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Don't let them pass judgment on you. What Paul is saying here, there is Christian freedom in this. But don't let old standards and man-made traditions burden you. These are a shadow of the things to come. That's not the point, is what Paul's saying. 
They're a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This is what is most important. Whether you hold to a strict Sabbatarian view or you hold to a more free Lord's Day view, what interprets this entire thing is chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is how you answer the question. There is Christian freedom in that. If you want strict observance and that is helpful for you, God bless you. It is a beautiful thing. What do do I mean by strict observance? If you're not familiar with this debate, um, some people don't believe that you should work at all, that you should watch TV, that you should go to the store, that you should do anything. I think there is validity in that. If that's what you do, if you dedicate your whole day to the Lord, good for you. I will never demean that. You have freedom to do that. But if you say, this is the day of the Lord, He is still my focus on this day, and I will rest and find refreshment in Him, and and we can joyfully do things to the praise of, of His glory that are a little more lenient, we have freedom to do that too. That The observance is not the point. This is what Paul is getting at. It's why you do it and who you do it for. We have freedom of conviction in that area. Just like alcohol or cards or dancing or whatever other people get worked up about. We have freedom in Christ for those things. Uh, So I want to share one more thing before we jump into our text. Uh, The London Baptist Confession, uh, the 1689 Confession, says this. This leans a little more toward the Sabbatarian side, but the the principles are good for all of us. if you were at our last members meeting, we are going to be adopting a uh, confessional statement. And so I, I like what they say here. So we'll, we will be adopting this statement, uh, and I'll put my clarification on this. But I like what they say here. The Sabbath is kept holy to the Lord when people have first prepared their hearts appropriately and arranged their everyday affairs in advance. Amen. Guys, we're going to be talking about that tonight in our study, about arranging our weeks and our Saturday nights so we can be prepared for worship on Sunday morning. We should all agree with that. Then they observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their secular employment and recreation. Not only that, but they also fill the whole time with public and private acts of worship and the duties of necessity and mercy. There are very few of us whose Sundays look like that. It's a good thing. It's a great benchmark to look at, but there is grace and freedom if your Sunday doesn't meet that every week. But if your Sunday never looks like that, if you're never removing yourself from the secular things, if your mind is constantly on the things of the world, if you're constantly pursuing your own works and your own pleasures, you are profaning the Sabbath of the Lord. If you do not love the things of God so much that you can take one day a week to pray with your brothers and sisters, to sing with them, to read God's word, to come to church. I'm glad you guys are here. Then it must bring you to question, how do I view my creator? How do I view my redeemer? How do I view a God who has covenanted with me through his son? Enough to give him one day a week. It's hard many weeks to give him an hour. But a day? God, you want 24 hours? And God's response to that, if I so boldly so speak for God, I gave you every breath, every moment, every day, every year you will ever have came from me. Can you give me one? Amen. So now let's jump into our passage. I'm going to read this again in case you forgot what we read earlier. You've covered a lot of ground since then. 
Mark 2, 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the name of Abathar, the the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. There is never a time when we open Scripture and it does not seek and search us and cut us to the core. We praise you that you in your wisdom have given us limitations. Because we don't know how to police ourselves. We don't know how to govern ourselves. We don't know how to limit ourselves. If it were up to us, we would strive in our own efforts 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. But you love us enough to set a day aside that is holy. Because you desire us to be holy. But most importantly... You desire us to know Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath. That in Him, we find rest not just one day, but in seven days and for eternity. You are not the God of mourning, but the God of joy and delight and rejoicing. Help us to learn from Your Word and apply it to our lives and live according to it, to the praise of Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what we're going to see in this passage this morning is a repeat of the pattern of last week. Jesus' disciples do something. The religious people have a problem with it. They bring it to Jesus' attention, and he responds with two statements about himself. We're going to do that same thing this morning. Picking up in verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. Now, the Greek gives us this this picture of making a way through the grain. They're walking through the grain fields, and they're plucking the heads off of the grain. Matthew tells us because they're hungry, and they ate them. You don't get those details in Mark, but that's that's there. They're not just throwing it in the air. They're they're hungry, and they're picking it up as they're they're walking. And so the, the Pharisees respond in an interesting way. Pharisees were saying, look. Why are they, this in the Greek is strong, behold, why are you doing, why are they doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Not lawful. What are they referring to? Because we read some passages on, on the Sabbath, and Leviticus has a lot more to say about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. It was the longest commandment, but they made it even longer. We've talked about the tradition of the elders before. They added 39 works that were not permissible on the Sabbath. 39. Let me just give you some examples just to kind of paint a picture. So one of them was the distance you could walk. You could walk 1,999 paces and not be sinning. But if you walk 2,000 paces, it becomes a journey and you have sinned. You have profaned the day. Another one is if your roof collapses... You cannot try to rebuild it. You can't do anything with it. If someone is trapped underneath your roof, you cannot move the stones to look for survivors. 
If your animal is giving birth, you cannot help them on the Sabbath because that would be work. If you sprain your ankle or you break your ankle, you cannot set it. You can't put it in a splint because that would be work. If you're bleeding, you could bandage it up. But if something is broken, you have to wait another day. These are the type of things that they are adding on to the Word of God. So when they say it's not lawful, are they talking about the Word of God or are they talking about their own man-made expectations? Because if they're talking about their expectations, the disciples potentially broke three of their cardinal rules for the Sabbath. One, they're probably taking a journey. If, they're walk, if you have enough time to go through a grain field, you've gone more than 1,999 steps. That's one. Two, you were harvesting, which is another one. By taking uh, pieces of grain off the top of the wheat, you have harvested. And number three, Luke tells us they're rubbing them in their hands to eat. That is, prep, that is preparing food. Also another sin. Three, that they broke in one action. So this is what they're referring to. But are they, in fact, breaking the law of Moses? Look at Deuteronomy 23, 25. If you're in our study, we probably just touched this briefly, and you never think you're going to go back to stuff like this, but here it is. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. What the disciples are doing is perfectly lawful. They're not harvesting their neighbor's grain. It is enough for them to eat as they move through. So if you don't know this context, it seems like the Pharisees have solid ground to stand on. So that's where we are. And so kind of our first application from our passage is when you spend all of your time as the Pharisees did, on endless rules trying to earn God's favor, you miss the, the, the weightier matters of the law. If all you are focusing on is do, 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 or don't, 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 you miss faith, and you miss mercy, and you miss love, and you miss righteousness, and you miss faithfulness, and you miss devotion. This is what they were devoid of. This is what we've seen the last two weeks in, Matthew, or in Mark chapter 2. Is that the Pharisees held on to their religious convictions and all these things that they added on to Scripture. And they've lost the beauty of a God who would covenant with a sinful people. They lost the beauty of a God who would create them in His image so that they could create and redeem them out of slavery so they could be free in Him. And we have to guard against this in our own lives. How often have I heard Christians say, you must dress this way, talk this way, act this way. You must do all these other things. Forget, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength? Why do you do what you do? So often we are rearranging everything on the outside and neglect the inside. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. And this is really Paul's point in the book of Galatians. There's a couple things in Galatians I want to bring up because this is helpful to understand Paul's conversion and Paul's ministry. Look at Galatians 1.14. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. That is the tradition of the elders that the Pharisees were, were following. Paul followed all of these. He was zealous for them. Paul was the Jew of Jews. He was better at being a Jew than anybody else, following the traditions of my fathers. All these extra 39 laws that were added on to, in the hundreds that were added on to the law of Moses. 
That's what Paul was before Christ. And he pleads with those in Galatia, don't go to a false gospel that gets you to try to earn your salvation by your works or by your your circumcision. You are children of Abraham through faith. And then in a moment of frustration in chapter 4, look what he says. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, I love that. People say, I've found God. No one has ever found God in their life, ever. No one has ever found God. If you know God, he found you. Let's continue. Or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Weak and elementary principles. Slaves to, the, to, to these world. He calls them worldly. And what is worldly? The observances of days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul is pouring his heart out here. We've given you the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet you go back to all of these rules. You think observances are better than eternal life in Christ? But let's be honest. In our flesh, that's what we want. Just tell me what I need to do. Give me step one, step two, step three. Lay it all out for me. Tell me what I need to do. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and they say, it can't be just that simple? People try to argue with you. Like, it can't be I just, I just have to trust in Christ. Yes, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. His spirit will work in you what needs to be. Well, well, don't have to do all these other things. Don't have to make a trip to Mecca or pilgrimages here or there. Don't have to walk upstairs. Don't have to, to pay a price. No. The beauty is knowing God being known by God. And then you realize God made the Sabbath for me. We'll get there in just a moment. All right, let's continue so I can finish this text today. Um, Look how Jesus responds here. And he said to them, this is really strong language, have you never read, double negatives, very strong, have you never read? I love this. Because if you're going to challenge Jesus, you better know your scriptures. And I love, this is a a great practice. Because whether he's tempted, whether he's challenged, whether he's evangelizing, what does Jesus do? He appeals to the unchanging word of God. There are many lessons we can learn from Jesus, obviously. But this is a good one. When you are challenged, draw your sword. Have you never read? This is a very powerful weapon. God's word is more powerful than any argument you can conjure up. Any beautiful string of words that you can put together. Jesus was bold in it. And so many of you I know are scared to respond when people challenge you. Are scared to share the gospel or explain what you believe. Because you're thinking that it's you who's going to do the work and you who's going to convict. Jesus, if anyone could correct them on the spot, but he uses God's word to humble them. Let's see what he uses. So he says, have you never read when da- what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God, this is the tabernacle at the time, in the time of Abithar, uh, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. 
So we've got to get the context here. What is the bread of the presence? Um, that's important to understand. It was bread within the, um, uh, within the tabernacle that the priests would do every week. So I wanna, I'm going to read this from Leviticus 24 because I think it, it's helpful. Uh, and then I'll give you a picture of what the bread of the presence was. So Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9. Uh, this will be on the screen as well. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves. This, this was to signify the 12 tribes of Israel. From it, two-tenths of an ephath uh, shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of, the, of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall pour frankincense, very expensive, on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord. That was work, by the way. Uh, regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. Another covenant sign. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it on a holy place, in a holy place, since it is for them a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. This is due to them forever. So this is bread that they would bake every Sunday, or excuse me, uh, every Sabbath morning. Every week it would be changed out. Six of them. There's a picture. You can go to that one, Trey. Um, and this is, this is actually in a tabernacle in Israel. So this is, uh, Jews have, this is their, their uh, rendering of what it may look like, and it's pretty close to specs. You've got these, not loaves of bread like we would think. It'd be tough to stack six loaves of bread, but theirs were more flat, uh, unleavened, six on each side. And so this was a big part of the priestly duties, was that they would bake this, and this was to sit all week. It was to be offered up to the Lord, and then they, and only they, could eat it at the end of the week. So, but what did David do? If you look at 1 Samuel 21, uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 3. So the situation here, David finds out from Jonathan that Saul's trying to kill him. He, he runs, takes his uh, faithful men with him, and seeks refuge, and goes to the tabernacle and speaks to the priest. And so when he comes to the priest, he's, he's hungry, he's in need. Verse 3, Now then, David speaking to the priest, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you have. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. Remember Leviticus uh, 24 we just looked at. If the young men have kept themselves from women, that means the men with David, and David answered the, the priest, truly women have been kept from us. As always when I go on an expedition, the vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will these vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, and there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. Remember, David is not king at this time. Saul is king. But David is the rightful king, the true king. But he knows his relationship with the Lord. This is just bread. I'm in the house of my God. Jesus appeals to David the man after God's own heart and his actions when, when he is in need, when he is hungry. There's some great similarities here. The priest speaks to David and his men as if they are priests. Are your men consecrated? Have they gone into women? Have they touched anything that was dead? Have they, you know, all of these, these things that were allowed of priests. So they are almost deputized as priests. They are seen as, as priests. They are eating what is a portion for the priests. And 
David make sure to feed those with him. So I want you to think about the parallels. How much more so for the promised son of David that we read in the covenant with David, 2 Samuel chapter 7 earlier. Think about it. The rightful king can rightly step where only priests can step. Who deputizes or who makes his men a kingdom of priests as well. The bread of the presence. He is the presence of God. He is the bread of life. He is the true high priest. He bestows that on those who are with him. So Jesus is drawing all of these parallels. I am the true son of David. My men who are with me are hungry. I sanctify things. And if they are with, with me, they are consecrated and they can eat because I give them good things. I am true bread. I am true life. I can stand because I am the high priest. They are consecrated as priests as well. There's a lot of symbolism in here, and this would have been a, a jaw-dropping moment for someone who the Pharisees don't respect to compare himself to David and to compare him, those with him to David's mighty men. And it does not end there, because if we are in Christ, he is our high priest. We are the kingdom of priests. He is the bread of life, and we are in him. How amazing is that? That the place where only the priest could go, where where the presence of God dwelt, he walks on our behalf, and he shares in that with his people. There's a lot of things that are, that are building up in this passage. And we'll dig into that a little bit more in just a second. But another thing I love, because often the Pharisees will refute, but how do the Pharisees respond? Verse 27, and he said to them, they were silenced. The word of God cut their tongues out. Jesse sent this to me earlier in the week, quote by Spurgeon, is perfect. I want to put it on a t-shirt just so you know. Um, Spurgeon says this, The word of God is the anvil upon which the opinions of men are smashed. That is fantastic. That is exactly what is going on here. They assert their opinions before God. Jesus brings out the anvil anvil and obliterates their man-made customs. Appeals to the king that they recognize. Placing himself and his men in comparison with David and theirs. And then he responds in a very powerful way. This gives us insight to the whole thing. What has God intended? All right, we see what they did. We see what David did. So what's the intention here? Look at verse 27. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What does this mean? I mean, essentially, what is of greater importance? A day or the pinnacle of God's creation? What is important? more important? Religious observance or the one made in the image of God himself? Because one will serve the other. So right now, the Pharisees are serving a day. They're not serving God. Or a day can be made to serve and be for the benefit of God's people. But what the religious elite have done then and are still doing now is they want God's people to serve laws. Instead of serving the the lawmaker, the God of the laws, and this is what is at stake here. 
So here's a direct lesson for us. What did God intend by instituting a Sabbath to the pinnacle of his creation? He gave it to Adam. It was reinstituted in the wilderness and again before they went into the land. And so the, the, the point here is that the letter of the law was not meant to harm man. It was not meant to be for our frustration, but our flourishing. Because God is good and he wants his people to flourish. Is it good to starve on the Sabbath? Jesus tells them at another time that you will go through all this trouble to sift out a gnat, a small little bug, but you will swallow a camel. This is what they are doing. You pay attention to the minute things, but you miss everything. You want them to starve for picking heads of grain? Really? You're going to go to the mat for heads of grain? God created everything for our good and for his glory to build his people up. So this should help us uh, understand how we view the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. We remember that this day is set aside for us to know that he is holy and find our rest and our refreshment in him. And now that we know who the Son of Man is, who the true David is, our rest is even more complete in him. He is our tabernacle. We are his priests. And so this day is a good thing. It is a, it is a joyful thing for God's people. Not like the sorrowful observance that we've seen with the uh, Pharisees so often. That's kind of the immediate lesson. But there's a grand lesson in this. God is a good God who gives good things. And God made man his image for relationship, for communion that is more important than anything else. All of these laws are to point us to the one who we're to be in relationship with. All of these laws find their fulfillment in Christ. He is the purpose. Again, laws are not for human frustration, but for human flourishing. Just like fasting, a time of observance and abstinence is a good thing if it is pointing to the Lord. Not just empty ritual that we do week after week or day after day. And remember from Isaiah, it is to be a delight. God made it for you. It's a gift. Here, I give you a day of rest so you don't have to work seven. Enjoy it. Thank the one who gave you that day. Focus on, on, on him. I don't know most of us or most of you are not guilty of all these legalistic things, but I think it's helpful to kind of put this in context. How did Jesus view it? It's a gift from God to his creation. And then the strongest sentence here. So, therefore, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. This is a strong, this is a mic drop moment. There's a lot in here, and so I want to work through a couple things. So the first thing we have to understand is that in Greek, there's this concept called fronting, where you put the word in the, in the front that has the most weight. So the way this is, if you were to read this in the Greek, so Greek is often like, like Yoda speak, where um, it kind of sounds backwards to the Western ear. But the way this is written, it is, it is essentially Lord, Lord comes first. Lord is the Son of Man, even over the Sabbath. That is the emphasis here. Lord is the Son of Man. That is an exhaustive statement. He's Lord over all, even over the Sabbath. 
So when he says this, this is very strong language. The first thing we have to notice, Lord is the Son of Man even over the Sabbath. Who created the Sabbath? God. Who has the right to claim claim lordship or mastery over the Sabbath? Who has authority over the Sabbath? Only God has authority over what God has instituted. This is another divine statement from Jesus. The Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. This would hurt the hearts of the Pharisees because in this moment they have to make a decision. Is he a liar or is he God? Lord is the Son of Man. Son of Man, the title that is given in Daniel 7. The, not a Son of Man, which speaks of humanity, but the Son of Man. One who has the characteristics and likeness of man standing before the Ancient of Days. Daniel 7. This powerful picture of one shining brightly and one in thunder. We're not there yet, Trey. We'll get there after. Sorry. I forgot to tell you we're going to do that last. I'm going to close with that. That was my fault. Um, we will get to Daniel 7. But this powerful title of one who stands before God, the ancient of days, the one without a beginning, who shines brightly, who is given all glory and all dominion, Lord is the Son of Man even over the Sabbath. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself because it does not allude to political kingdoms or false messianic ideas. It is divine when he says it. And so if you understand that he is Lord even over the Sabbath, you rest in the Son of God. You rest in the one who could stand before the one who is before time and be given glory from the Ancient of Days. I am Lord over the Sabbath. And as Lord of creation, I am master over all seven days, not just the one. Even this holy day, the one that marks the rhythm of your life, the one that you've added all these rules to, you are standing before the one who instituted it. How dare you tell me what, this, what to do on this day? It is my day that I've given to you. This is a powerful exchange. Because on the other side of the aisle from him are the ones who added all the rules and all the expectations to the day. All the added rules are not the point. It is who that day is for, who it is directed to. This is not a contradiction for Jesus to correct them. He is the lawgiver. He is the one who can interpret the laws. And he offers the fulfillment of the law and the freedom in it. And so now, this is why we worship on the first day of the week instead of the last. This is why we call our day the Lord's Day. Because it is the day that he rose again from the grave. And if he is the focus, and if he is the Lord, and if he is our reason for gathering, he also is our reason for worship. And so when we think about the Lord's day, this is a creation principle. In Christ, we are a new creation. When he rose again from the grave, bringing himself to new life, we have new life in him. It is a day of remembrance of creation. It is also in that same instance It is a day of redemption because he rose again to new life because he died first, bringing our sins with him on the cross. 
And so when Israel looked back to the day of God's creation and the day of their redemption, we, when we gather on the Lord's day, the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, his resurrection symbolizes our new creation, our redemption in him, and our covenant that we have in his blood. All of that same symbolism is still available to us, and we should use it and take it to God's glory. It was a powerful, powerful message. So how do we answer the debate? Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it unto the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. And that's how we view the Sabbath. But remember all of those things. And if you have a hard time remembering that, take time out of your day. Take time out of your week and reflect on those things. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. You are redeemed from your slavery to sin. God has covenanted with you through his Son, sealed it with his Spirit, that you may have rest in him forever. That is what is most important in this Sabbath principle. So, a couple quick closing thoughts, and then we will get to Daniel 7. Um, Part of the good news of the gospel is that there is rest in Jesus Christ. That promise rest in Hebrews 4 is for those who are in him. Not just one day, but seven. If you are in Christ, I want you to know that you can put your head on the pillow every night knowing that he will sustain you and if he takes you you will be with him seven days knowing that when you are with him that rest that peace that you will never find here on earth and i challenge you if you are trying to find rest and fulfillment and peace and joy in anything else but him it will let you down every time that is true sabbath true shalom but in the meantime i do encourage you to institute a day into your week. Find a day, and some of you have weird work schedules, even if it's not the same day as everyone else, or sometimes it may change. Institute a day into your week. When you say, I'm going to devote this day to the Lord, and it may be a tough transition. I may shut off my phone for a while. I may spend more time in God's word. I may just surround myself with, with believers because I need accountability. Start singing with people. We're, we're, we're weird. We gather and we pray together and we sing together remembering the God of new creation, remembering the God of redemption who has covenanted with you. And our God is the Son of Man. I want to close with this uh, proclamation from Daniel 7. Daniel 7, I encourage you to read the whole chapter, but we're just going to look at 13 and 14. This is a vision that Daniel saw. And I saw a night vision. Listen to the language here. When Jesus says, the the Son of Man, referring to me, this is what he's describing. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Let's pray. Lord, what do I say after that? Heavenly Father, the Ancient of Days, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Spirit of God sent from the Father and the Son to reveal this to us. You are the only God who could do this. You are the only God who can declare this. You are the only God who can expect our worship. 
You are a holy God who expect a people holy for himself. Lord, help us to not be cold and legalistic. Help us to not also be apathetic or ignore your commands, but help us rightly to do everything in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, who gives us, who gives us life, who gives us salvation, who gives us freedom, who gives us abundance. He is our Lord, not just over one day of the week, but every day, every breath, every moment, every thought, every action. He is Lord of all. We praise him and pray in his glorious name. Amen.